Well, for those of you that are new, uh, we are in the middle of a series, about halfway, a little beyond, maybe more like two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be finishing up um, the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke today. Our scripture reading, today's message is entitled, The Cost of Discipleship, real uh, original, right? Uh, There's probably a million uh, of those uh, titles out there. But the cost of discipleship, and we're going to be reading God's word from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And I again remind you, this is not the word of men, but the word of the living God. Hear it with very careful attention and appreciation. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's ask his blessing on it now. Father, once again, we ask for the illumination and help of the Holy Spirit, whom you sent to be our helper, to reveal truth to us. And Lord, today... Give us understanding, and most of all, give us resolve to remain as your disciples to the end. And Father, if there are those today, let this be the day in which they count the cost and become a follower of Jesus also. And we pray this in the powerful name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I said, today we're ending chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, and we're once again on the road with Jesus once more. 
Uh, Jesus has gone, headed for Jerusalem and went there and he's come back. He's been back and forth, back and forth between Upper Galilee and Jerusalem. And here he, he now is journeying onward. It's not yet time, but it's coming closer. And in this case, this group that is following him, it's been growing and growing and growing even larger. Now, the time is not far coming when it's going to begin to shrink. And some of the things that we're going to hear today from this text show us the signs of that. That people are beginning to scratch their head and wondering, yeah, do I really want to be a part of this? So, many of the things Jesus is saying now are surprisingly not intended to attract more followers. He certainly did that for so long, and he's still right now attracting more followers. But today, did you hear the things he said? He seemingly... At this point in time, he's seeming to go on the offensive. He has often been disrupting in some of the things that he has recently said and done. You remember some of those things, like picking fights with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, like exposing their hypocrisy before a watching world, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now, instead of trying to win converts, he seems to be trying to run them off with his exacting demands. It seems as if he is intent on not only upsetting his critics, but also his potential disciples. The good guys, the ones that are with him. It seems like today he is saying things that even make them think about, do I want to stay on this road, down this path? Where is this going? Now, here's today's outline. The parallel sayings, there are a couple of those right up front. Then, in the middle, there are some parabolic illustrations, a couple of those too. And then finally, there's a salty conclusion. Now, you notice uh, alliteration didn't, uh, ran out there at the end. There's no, no, I couldn't find a way to make that, so you'll have to forgive me. All right, let's dig in. Parallel sayings, that's verses 25 through 27 of our text. Jesus did not want his disciples to have the wrong expectations about what it meant to follow him all the way. Now, he wanted them to count the cost. Take reconnaissance. Make it sure that you understand what you're getting into. That's why Jesus is saying some of the things, hard sayings that he's saying now. He wants them to do that before they make a, quote, final commitment or make a decision, as we would say today, for him, for Jesus. 
Now, Jesus, as we've seen already, doesn't pull many punches. He was very clear about the degree of commitment that was required of a disciple. He's now honing in and giving details of what this is going to entail. Following Jesus involves even, the text says, hating one's family and even one's own life. Now, as you might expect, this idea of hating has caused much confusion among Jesus' followers then and now. I mean, even today, we, what? Didn't Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Yes, he did. Well, then how can we hate our family and friends? So, but Jesus was not saying that his followers must harbor ill will toward one's family or toward their friends. Sometimes things we might could say get lost in translation. In other words, there's some things about the way they spoke 2,000 years ago and beyond, earlier than that even, that we're showing, that's why we often have trouble reading poetry, Old Testament poetry. We don't understand. We take, we take it too literal and too wooden. And so in this case, the law, what gets lost in translation here is we try to read it from our vantage point, is we're not recognizing the truth that this is a what's called Semitic idiom or expression. An idiom, saying, or, or, or expression. It's Semitic. What does that mean? You see, this is due, that's what's going on here. That's why it sounds like, you mean Jesus wants us to hate ourselves and hate our families? No, not really at all. But that's how, if you pick it up, and remember, there are three gospels, synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? Who's the outsider? Who's not in the club originally? Luke. He's coming from a Gentile background. And so it's not surprising that he would use maybe other ways to express something. For instance, Luke used a word-for-word translation, and that's good Word-for-word translations are good, but sometimes they don't get at the real meaning, clearly. That happens in Bible translation and trying to read your Bible and understand that. So Luke used a word-for-word translation, but Matthew, the Hebrew, the Jew, Matthew used and knew how to use the thought-for-thought interpretation instead of the word-for-word interpretation, and that resulted in a relative comparison of things, not an absolute destroying of things or getting it completely out of the picture. You see, in Hebrew, the word hate 
can also mean love less. Love less or put in a lesser place. Put in a lesser place. In other words, it says this, but you're to understand that. It says hate, but you're to understand love less. You get it? That is common. That is Hebraic or Semitic idioms at work. And of course, Matthew and Mark knew that. Luke was just being straight up. He was just telling it like it is, straight wooden translation. But you understand that. That's how Jesus was using it. Notice the example in Genesis 29, 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated by her husband, Jacob, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, do you really think that Jacob hated her, hated her guts to be visceral? Of course not. He just had a lot more going on for not Leah, but for Rachel. He preferred her and gave deference to her. So you see, this is important. Jesus was saying that whoever, what was the real point? That whoever loves him more than his own family. In other words, whoever it is saying, I love my family, family first. He's saying that those, Jesus was saying that whoever did not love him more than his own family or even his own self could not be his disciple. You've got to have Jesus first. It's got to be one way. First, foremost. Listen to this quote from uh, Oswald Chambers. Discipleship means, pers- uh, means personal, passionate devotion to a person, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference between devotion to a person and devotion to a principle or a cause. Our Lord never proclaimed a cause. He proclaimed personal devotion to himself. And any other thing that gets in the way of that. There cannot be a rival that's on the same level. Everything has to be below. You see, Jesus doesn't take second place. No one or no thing can usurp his supreme position as Lord and Savior. You've got to make a choice. You can't have it halfway. Well, how, they're, on, they're the same. Jesus and you know all these other things. No. He always has the ascendancy. Now in the second saying, Jesus made it clear that whoever wanted to be his disciple would have to be willing to take up his cross and follow him on the same destination of where he was going. Where was that? To the cross. To Jerusalem. To die. It's an invitation to die. 
That's what we have to be willing to do. Maybe not at any given one point in time, but there will be those decisions, those choices that have to be made. Sometimes they may be rare. There may be times in which they aren't required. But Jesus knew he was going to that place. And he was expecting, not all, but there would be many of his followers that would go and follow him to the cross after him and would be part of changing the world that he set in motion. This is, this is amazing to me. Um, in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, very familiar passage to many of us, um, but one of most of the translations uh, are not like this one, but this is this is one of the translations um, that says faith's pioneer and perfecter. We usually think of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what most translations do. But this translation um, is faith. They 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 render it this way: faith's pioneer and perfecter. And the first part is what I'm trying to to, to hook you with: the pioneer. The one that's going to go ahead of us and go first. That's what Jesus was getting ready ready to do. He was going to go to the cross for us. And the implication is, if you're his follower, you may be called upon, as so many have down through the ages, to be in his train. To be following Jesus. And you know where this is all pulled together so beautifully? is in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Listen to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of and perfecter of our faith. He's gone before. He's showing us how. He's doing it for us and in us. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where the end point comes. Great suffering. Great exaltation. You see, that's the picture. Jesus is saying, that's where it goes. Follow me, and ultimately, it will go to a place so out of this world you cannot imagine. But there will be times in which you will have to make choices, hard choices. And Jesus must always be, if you want to be his disciple, the choice that you take. Now, Secondly, there's a parabolic, a couple of parabolic illustrations. And it's, it takes up a lot of the text, but it's really pretty, pretty tight. Jesus then follows this costly call of these two parables. Um, he, with, again, a challenge to count the cost. That's in verse 28 through 32. And 
there are similarities here. There's two, two illustrations or, or parables. The first one says, Jesus says, is if you plan to build something and you want to build something, but you haven't made the proper plans to make sure you got enough to finish it, well, if that's the case, you are really going to end up being the butt of a lot of jokes. Because you can't, you didn't prepare. You didn't, you started well, but you didn't have enough. You weren't willing to commit enough resources to do it. And he said, you can't be my disciple. My disciples have got to be willing to go in for the long haul and do what it takes to finish the task. Notice the Gettys, if you ever know, finishing the unfinished task in missions. It's that kind of, that's what Jesus is saying. You've got to be willing to do that. It's an unfinished task, and you're part of my army for that. And then the second illustration, Jesus says, what king, when he suddenly is threatened by a strong enemy king, doesn't do some good re- uh, reconnaissance? If he discovers that he's outgunned two to one, and that's what's here, 10,000 versus 20,000, I don't like those odds <laughs> if that was me uh, as a commander. Uh, what does he do then? Well, basically he's got two, one or two choices. At this point, two options are there. First, try to negotiate. <laughs> try to negotiate um, a settlement of some kind that will be somewhat, he's got the upper hand, but maybe you can get a, some kind of a settlement out of this and not, not get absolutely splattered all over the wall. Or, if he doesn't want to do that, be willing to risk it all on the battlefield. You go all in, poker game. There goes all the chips in. You, you're going to win it or, or you're going to die trying. So, and if he does, he must be willing to give it everything he's got. You can't say, well, I think I'll keep back. And if, if, you know, if you've ever noticed, um, follow Civil War history, certain generals kept, kept well, I'm going to hang, well, what, this could happen, so I'm going to hang this brute back. And they had the overwhelming superiority, the Union did. And yet, many times, the Confederates won a battle or a stalemate, at least, simply because temerity. They weren't willing to go and put stuff where they had to put it and be willing to commit to it. That's hard to do. I'm glad that's not my, my call. But Jesus is saying, this is the way it is with being my disciple. You're going to have to be ready, flexible to make those decisions. And you've got to be fully in, all in. You can't be somewhere in the middle You see, halfway commitment is not real commitment, according to Jesus. It's not. Now, Jesus does not want his disciples to be hasty. That's why he's talking to them. He's really not trying to run them away. Now, probably some of the ones that are his enemies, he might be trying to get rid of them. But he's going to say a lot more that's going to 
cause them to start dropping like flies. But instead, he wants them to not make emotional decisions. Instead, he encourages them that they would follow him and think long and hard about counting the cost. I remember, um, again, in the time frame uh, that uh, the early 70s, uh, excuse me, late 70s, and uh, uh, that was the time in which I was converted. And and after a couple of years, I had got involved in, in some degree of leadership. And I remember the guy that was our youth guy that was uh, at that time, his name was John Musselman, and he took us on a, a trip up to Gatlinburg. You know, it was a wonderful, you know, fun time and, and whatever, but also we, we got into scriptures and did a lot of Bible study and a lot of, and, and John uh, taught us and taught us, but I'm, I'll never forget, you know, I've been thinking, oh, this, this Christianity thing is just so great, man, I'm, I'm just flying on the clouds. I, I, my feet aren't touching the ground. I mean, I've got brothers and sisters I've never had before. I got people that love me and I love it. You know, this is just, this is such, this Christianity thing is so cool. And I remember John started on passages like this. If you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. You can't. And I started thinking, well, wait, John, you, what if you got the right Bible? Jesus, Jesus wouldn't be talking like that. And John just hammered and hammered the cost. And man, I just felt going out of there like this, like, God, oh, you know, how am I going to, when that happens and when this happens, how am I going to survive? You see, he was trying to not run us away, but he wanted us to understand a lot of times we, we get hit in the face with reality and we think, oh God, how could this have happened? How could you let this happen? Did you count the cost? Do you understand the cost? Do I? Jesus did not trick us. He didn't bait and switch us. He told us straight up. That sometime it would be costly. For some it is costly often. We just happen to be in a place and a time where for us we think it's hard. But it's a, hard, a lot of other places it's a lot harder to be a follower of Jesus. Those guys, a whole row of them. Coptic brothers and sisters in Christ. Throats, one after another, bleeding out right there for the world to see. Jesus is just trying to make sure we understand. Oh, will it be worth it? In the Lord? You bet it will. That will be a small, small price to pay. But the cost is there. Now, here's the salty conclusion, the verses 34 and 35. Jesus' closing statement is all about not trying to be abrupt, but it seems like he is. He kind of 
this thing about saltiness and losing it. Salt, what in the world is that? It's perfectly in keeping with everything that's been going before. Luke brings the idea of saltiness for the long haul. He said, you got to be ready to be salty, to be the salt of the earth for the long haul. Salt was essential in those days, but guess what? It was easily corrupted, particularly around the Dead Sea where most of the, uh, the uh, salt was mined. And it was easy to get uh, impurities and the salt would lose its value. And worse than that, Jesus said it not only does that, it doesn't just lose its value, it becomes even rancid. It becomes, it fades and it loses that saltiness both in what its properties and what it can do. And such saltiness would be worse than useless. It, it would be carcinogenic. It would be problematic. Not just, okay, it's not as t- tasty as it used to be. No, it's rancid, rank. Listen to what Michael Card, uh, the, the musician, said in his, his commentary. He says, the salt in Jesus' area came from the Dead Sea sea and could contain impurities that would cause it to be rancid. This explains the notion of how salt loses its saltiness. It must remain pure to fulfill its purpose. Likewise, if anyone who follows Jesus falters in their allegiance to him, they lose their purpose and their reason for being is gone. You lose your purpose and the reason why you were put here. You see, interestingly, the verb loses its saltiness in the rest of the New Testament. You know what it's translated as? To become foolish. That's what Jesus is saying. You want to be a fool and start this and have that happen? Do you you want to look that foolish? You're not taking into account... So, indeed, foolish are those, brothers and sisters, who do not consider the cost of being Jesus' disciple. What about us? What about us? May it be said of you and me, his faithful follower, I would be. For by his hand, he leadeth me. Amen. Father, it is by your hand only, if you lead us, that we can go and we can follow. Lord, help us to be faithful to the end. To not give up, not lose heart, however hard the road before us is. But it awaits for us one day a crown, a place of such imaginable glory that you have prepared. You went to the cross. You now wear the crown, and so will we who follow you. Help us to be faithful, Jesus, we pray. Amen.